so modern about modern humans? I've given you two examples of skulls. The first ones are anatomically, the top ones, anatomically modern homo sapiens. That's what we know as being modern homo sapiens, as in our ancestors today. And then the ones that are predecessors to that, the archaic homo sapiens, are what your author is calling archaic humans, which include Neanderthals. So, in this, it's very clear that there are some distinct features that define these archaic humans different from these more modern homo sapiens. So, you start to notice that the archaic homo sapiens have these really large brow ridges, really pronounced brow ridges. They have really kind of this prognathic lower protrusion of the face. They have this very large nasal aperture and these large wide cheekbones. Whereas modern humans are more gracile. And what's most important to list in anatomically modern humans is this presence of a very high vertical forehead and the presence of a mental eminence, which is your chin. You don't see that in archaic humans. You only see that in modern humans. Again, that high vertical forehead and that presence of a mental eminence, which is your chin. Also other reduced features, smaller teeth, small gracile brow ridges, flatter face, small cheekbones. Very, very distinct hallmark features that define modern on the basis of these distinct anatomical characteristics. And it really provides a baseline from which to assess the origins, evolution in the geographic distribution, we'll look at that today, how they are migrating out, where we are getting those fossil evidence, and what the dates are in relation to those fossil evidence to give us that distribution to help us with those hypotheses or theories on how that origins, how the origins of Homo sapiens came to be. So let's see, I think this first, uh, this first modern one is from Czechoslovakia, the modern day Czech Republic, discovered about 30,000 years ago. It's about 30,000 years ago. Whereas this individual, the archaic, he is from Atapuerca, Spain. Isn't that interesting? More Neanderthal-like features from the western edge of Europe at around 500,000 years ago, right? So very, very interesting. Modern humans are identified on the basis of these very defined characteristics. But first, let's get to what defines these archaic humans from these modern humans. So these are your features list. These are what you're going to look for when you see these fossil findings. These are the ancestors of modern people, including Neanderthals. Those are the archaic humans. They have this very long, low skull. You come with me over here. I, I didn't take it out of the cabinet, but you can see it over here. This guy in particular, for those of you on this side, I really apologize you won't be able to see it, but you can see this guy as well. This is the Heidelbergensis. This guy and this guy, if you notice, they have lacking of a forehead, really pronounced brow ridge. Anybody really on this top line except for these two right here. But these guys have very pronounced brow ridges and they have this very long, low skull. They do not have that very tall vertical forehead. They have a very long, low skull with the really base is kind of at its widest. And they have prognathic faces, more so than modern humans. And 
for archaic humans that fall into that Neanderthal group, they have a very wide nasal aperture. So where the nose would be is very wide because of it helps to warm that cool air. They are very cold adapted individuals. Helps to warm that air as it comes into the face. There are other features we'll go over as well as we get deeper into the chapter. So, long low skull, large brow ridge, very problematic, wide nasal aperture, and the presence of this occipital bun. Remember that occipital bun is on the back side of your head where that occipital bone is. They have the presence of that occipital bun, probably because of the heavy features in the frontal portion of their face. They have large front teeth, no chin. They have a recessed chin, which is very interesting. And they have thick postcranial bones. When you say postcranial, it means anything below the crania. So you're talking body parts. Very stout, very thick, very, very short. And their bones are made to resist that very cold weather. They are very cold weather adapted individuals. Now, for modern humans, what's very interesting is that they have, again, that very high vertical forehead. And because they have that very developed frontal lobe, we have very developed frontal lobe, we have a very tall, rounded skull. You look at Mr. Skeleton right behind our friend Josh right there. He's got a very high, tall forehead and a very nice, tall, tall, uh, rounded skull. A very small face, small teeth, presence of a chin, and the postcranial body is very gracile and narrow. Tall and narrow. Okay, so this is your timeline. We left off it. Homo erectus, remember Homo erectus population fossil findings are all the way from 1.8 million years ago to about 300,000 years ago. That means we have an overlap again. The presence of the possibility of multiple lineages of Homo coexisting in multiple different ecological environments at the same time. Homo sapiens, the evolution and the emergence of archaic forms appear in Africa. All of humanity starts in Africa and it migrates out. We start to see dates in Africa for modern humans and archaic humans at the earliest about 500,000 years ago, leaving at around 350,000 years ago in Africa. You start to see the presence of modern and archaic, I'm sorry, archaic Homo sapiens in Asia and Europe right at the end, right at around 350,000 to 200,000 years ago and then enter modern humans at around 150, 200,000 years ago. There's that overlap in Europe. Now, Neanderthals are interesting because we stopped seeing fossil evidence at around 30,000 years ago. That's not that long ago, 30,000 years ago. Something happens environmentally, climatically, to not allow all of these leftover human species they are human species because they all have a denotation of the genus Homo in front of them. Something happens that they die off and the only remaining human standing is Homo sapien at around 30,000 years ago. Very interesting. The transition is complete to fully modern humans globally by about 25,000 years before present, which is not that long ago. So let's talk about some of these theories, these hypotheses. Some of the most well-known Chris Stringer's is out of Africa theory, out of Africa hypothesis, I'm sorry, where he says that all of the species and genuses leading up to humanity, leading up to our human race, 
our hum human variation has started in Africa and then led out into the various regions outside of Africa. These two main hypotheses have emerged to explain modern people origins. Archaic Homo sapiens, which is to many researchers just this late erectus, again, a lumper, appears in the fossil record 500,000 years ago. As time goes by, the ones in Europe begin to look more like Neanderthals. The ones in Africa begin to look more like Homo sapiens. The out of Africa hypothesis argues that Homo sapiens evolved in Africa and then spread out into Asia first and then Europe, replacing. This is a replacement model, not an interbreeding model. And he's saying that these, re these populations replace the archaic populations, like Neanderthals, without interbreeding. In other words, other archaic hominins were probably a different species, whereas the multi-regional continuity hypothesis lets us have more of this migratory interbreeding understanding. The multi-regional model rejects replacement. It argues that there was consistent gene flow, interbreeding, connecting Homo erectus through time and that the transition to Homo sapiens happened in Africa, Asia, and Europe simultaneously at the same time. And that these populations interbred with one another and that's why you're getting these features that really kind of mimic each other all the way through time. So which one is correct? We don't know. We need a lot more fossil evidence and let's get into that fossil evidence right now. So what do Homo sapien fossils tell us about modern human origins? Now let's just look at where some of these features and the fossils are. This is Kabwe, south, southeastern region of Africa. Very, very robust features. Bodo, we already talked about Bodo because we thought maybe Bodo was actually a Homo erectus. Some individuals say that, you know what, maybe Bodo, uh, because of its brain size, might be an actual archaic Homo sapien because of its brain size is so big. But Bodo actually exhibits many features that are reminiscent of Homo erectus. So Bodo is very interesting. You come over here to the Asian area and notice that these features are much different over here in the European area. But if you come over here into the Asian area, you get that long, low skull. The widest part is at the bottom. You get this intense brow ridge all the way up through this Asian, Middle Eastern, and uh, Asian continent. Again, large brow ridge, long, low skull, incredibly large brow ridge, flat face, large flat face of that Asian population that we still see today, features of that Asian population today. As you get into this Asian continent area, you start to see a reduction in the brow ridge. You start to see this wide kind of widening of the nasal aperture, and you start to see this increase of the forehead. So, features that kind of start to show the migration patterns of these individuals coming out of Africa. Okay, so let's talk about this archaic group. Archaic Homo sapiens in Africa first. Everything starts in Africa, just keep it simple, right? Everything starts in Africa. Now, these are examples. Again, this is Bodo. Bodo's interesting because there's a lot of controversy around him. And this is Kabwe, found in Zambia. So, they have very erectus-like features in this very archaic Homo sapiens. Remember when we wrote our little thing up here, we were talking about archaic Homo sapiens coming out of this erectus group. So they have a large face with heavy brow ridge. 
And what's most interesting is that they have large, heavily worn front teeth. What that's indicating to us is that they're using their teeth as a set of tools, especially when processing meat. Bodo has this erectile-like features, and it's really only 600,000 years old, so it's not that old. So that's why they're placing him in this archaic homo sapien category instead of erectus, which is actually precursor. And it has a rather large brain. A normal average size brain today is about 1,500 cc, so that's right up there. It's not, not very big, I'm not very small at all. Now, Cogway. Uh, this has a large cranial capacity as well, but look at the date. It's only 40,000 years old. If it's only 40,000 years old, look at the extensive amount of robusticity in the brow ridge. Again, a very large face, large cranial capacity, and again, wearing of those front teeth. So, these, and these guys are very, very interesting. The front teeth are large but heavily worn, reflects the use of teeth as a third hand to grip material, such as hide, while the carcass is being processed. Very, very significant to these uh, specimens in themselves. So they're still relying on teeth, still relying on uh, less on a cultural tool than on their teeth. Let's see if I missed anything. Okay, I think that was it. Let's go to archaic Homo sapiens out of Africa into Asia. This archaic Homo sapien group in Asia, again, still exhibits this long, low skull. Notice the lack of that high vertical forehead, but the long, low skull where the face is the widest and that uh, pronounced brow ridge. So, uh, the thing that's important here is that these features in Asia really are at the at the very oldest in 350,000 years old to about 130,000 years. They show a very large brain, again, long, low skull, but taller than Homo erectus, just not that presence of the forehead that were specific with Homo sapiens, modern homos. Very robust and thick cranial bones. So I think what we need to remember, the important thing to notice here is that the same kinds of anatomy that we saw in the African archaic Homo sapiens are also present in the Asian archaic Homo sapiens. And so these similar anatomies really suggest a certain amount of gene flow over time, connecting these populations across continents. So again, <coughs> during your migratory path, you're coming into populations that might resemble you, so much so you feel the need to interbreed along the way and you're passing along your genes, reducing the amount of diversity and increasing the amount of homogeneity, meaning things are starting to look the same across continents, right? Okay, so remember that they are coming out of Africa and swinging right, going west. Seems as though that climate is much more favorable going into the Asian continent than going up north and swinging east into Europe. As we get into the European continent, we start to see a different suite of features. And we believe that they become so isolated geographically that they really start to speciate kind of into their own group. So what's interesting about these archaic Homo sapiens is that they're much later in the timeline. And the fossil features that we're finding is actually in so much later in the timeline that we can place it as a migratory path after they've already inhabited the Asian continent. So fossils here in Europe date from at the oldest 500,000 
to at the earliest 200,000 for archaic Homo sapiens. Again, that group that is your author is lumping together as this kind of late Homo erectus feature and this very early Homo sapien feature. They have, these archaic Homo sapiens, again, have these really long, low skulls. They have a large cranial capacity, and they seem to be modern in appearance, but still have a very large brow ridge. Look at the uh, variation, but still somewhat similar in features in Greece, France, Germany, the presence of the brow ridge, slightly large nasal aperture, um, not as robust as the features that were seen in Africa and Asia. It's different in way of kind of migratory uh, population leading off into its own group. But still, great example of large teeth with a pronounced degree of tooth wear. They're using their teeth as a gripping agent to use as a tool. And they are selecting for this large tooth individual because that's really gonna allow the longevity of your life in way of using it as a tool and being able to pass on your gene. Okay, so one thing to note here is that some of the European archaic Homo sapiens have a projecting face and a very wide nose. These features foreshadow anatomies found later in Neanderthals from Europe and suggest that this population was becoming genetically isolated, evolving regional adaptations to that population. So that was your crash course, crash course overview. Now, the next slides, because that was the early and archaic group, like I said, your author gradates this archaic group, we're gonna look at the late archaic. So these next slides are gonna be all considered late archaic in Europe, also known as Neanderthals. So this is your section right now that is gonna focus specifically on the Western European area known as Neanderthals. Atapuerca, Spain, one of the most well-known sites for Neanderthal fossil findings. This is an actual excavation happening right here, although I wish that they were a little bit more clean in their excavation because if you can find any non-fossilized material, which some of this is not fossilized, you're really also contributing your contamination of fossil, I mean, your contamination of human DNA into that pit, which can be very confusing, especially if you are already a homo sapien. Our genes are so close together that any contamination can be detrimental to the extraction of genetic information. So this is an Atapuerca. It's a, it's a cave with multiple different hominin species. Look at this jaw right here with the teeth popping out. This is a brow ridge right there. Here's some sort of shaft of a long bone. Really, really rich in fossil findings. This actually picture kind of reminds me of what um, what the uh, dig site looks like at the La Brea Tar Pits in those very rich, thick, dense, goopy material in which a lot of species just kind of got caught, couldn't get out like a glue trap, you know, and they just start to fall on top of each other, nestle in, and you start to get a lot of variation and a lot of variety of um, species happening at the same time. Yes, ma'am? What do you mean as like the DNA? Like you said that we're like really similar, but if they touch it with their bare hands, then they'll say, oh, this is your bone? Or Okay, maybe... so even if you shake your hands like this, small molecules of skin cells are dropping right now. And as those molecules are dropping, you're contributing your DNA to whatever it's dropping onto. Yes. So you sneeze, you drop a hair with a bulb on it, 
when sometimes you pull out the hair, not the buildup, but the actual bulb, that has DNA in it. All your skin cells have DNA in it, and it can contaminate other sources of DNA. For instance, when I studied my blue monkeys, I had to wear a mask, I had to wear a hairnet, and I had to wear gloves because monkey DNA is also very, very similar to our human DNA, and any contamination can ruin that nucleotide setup. So if you have a very similar setup, like we do human to human, whose human DNA are you looking at? That's the bottom line. So you have to have a very clean environment. Now I'm assuming that most of these are gonna be fossils, but what happens if you get to a strata that's very high up and it hasn't had time to fossilize? You have a very keen opportunity to extract DNA, but if you're contaminating it with all sorts of other human, modern human DNA, it's very difficult to discern that DNA from modern human and what was once maybe Neanderthal, because we are all very, very similar, genetically speaking. That's that 98, 99%, and it's not enough to separate what is a uh, homo neanderthalensis from a homo sapiens sapien. So I wish they were a little bit more clean in their process, but hopefully most of them are, are fossilized, so you can't actually pull DNA from fossilized material because the material has changed from an organic to an inorganic process, and you can't extract DNA from stone. Getting back to, I hope that helped, did that help a little bit? Okay, so getting back to the cave, uh, they say that there are fossils from archaic Homo sapiens about 500,000 years ago. Half a million years to put it out of fossilized state. These fossils in Spain are the ancestors of Neanderthals. So remember that antecessor group? That's why they're calling it antecessor. Not quite erectus, not quite Neanderthal, but out of this region, enough of those kind of mosaic features to call it homo, homo antecessor, which is right before they think Neanderthals. So interesting presence of deliberately made cut marks on some of these hominid bones, which is really interesting because the cut marks are quite similar to how they would butcher and process meat to consume. So some scientists believe that the similarity on both the animal and the hominoid bones, hominid bones in Grandolina may yield the earliest evidence of human meat processing. They jump so far as to call it cannibalism. We don't have evidence of consumption of human meat. I don't like to call it cannibalism because it would be very difficult unless you pulled isotopes from the actual caries of the tooth itself to show that it is of a carnivore human remnant, I don't know if you can actually say that it's cannibalism. You can say that it's processing of human meat from a human carcass. However, I don't know if they actually consumed that meat for cannibalistic purposes. It's a gradation of a line of, of semantics, right? So the fossils from Spain are early ancestors of Neanderthals. That's why they're calling them this late archaic, because the late archaics are Neanderthals, late archaic homo sapiens in the Middle East. Amud has a 55,000 to 40,000 year old uh, skeleton, exceptionally large brain, 1,700 cc's, that's larger than our brain right now. That individual had a very large noggin. The Neanderthal of Kibara, very interesting find. We start to see the complete mandible and body skeleton. This gives us so much information about the structure of the body, the environment that played on the body, the adaptations of the body in the environment. 
So it really helps uh, researchers to reconstruct that typical body of a male Neanderthal. Notice the truncation of the trunk in general. It's very, very short. Look at the uh, Mr. Skeleton right behind our, our good friend Josh back there. Much more elongated in that trunk region. Very tall and slender. Neanderthal body type is very reminiscent of the stout, short stature. They have, I, I bolded the most uh, notorious or uh, famous features. Wide, tall, nasal aperture, projecting face. They have an occipital bun at the back of the head that we don't have. We have an, an occipital bone, but they have an occipital bun. They have a very long, low skull. It's almost like a football. If you hold like a football, it's kind of like long and low like a football. They have very heavy teeth, uh, teeth wear in the front. Again, wide, stocky bodies, short limbs, and a new kind of tool. <coughs> and most importantly, I think, you start to see this new pattern of a change in the form. That's what morphology is, is a change in the form in reflection to the regional variation, specifically for cold adaptations. So you start to see this very keen cultural innovation Mixing with that biological aspect, getting that cultural biological underpinning. So this guy is kind of important. A very interesting find. Coming out of the Shanadar, Iraq. It's a cave. This is the, the picture of the cave in Shanadar, Iraq. Estimated to be about 45,000 years ago, so on the later end of the Neanderthal group. Estimated to be an elderly male, they think maybe in his 40s or 50s, which at the time is elder. Um, heavy wear on the front teeth again, very large brain. But what is so interesting is that they have evidence of an eye injury, an arm amputation, and a foot with arthritis. So this individual, here's the skull. Here's that little uh, abrasion right there on that, on that uh, portion of the and you can see the divot in right there of the skull. Individual has typical Neanderthal uh, features, including that large brow ridge, wearing on the teeth. But what's so interesting is this atrophy of the right humerus. Remember, that's the upper portion of the, of the arm. Uh, may have uh, resulted in injury and possibly the lower portion amputated. There's no evidence, but at the same time, the possibility of having that lower portion still attached is probably nil. It's very, very unlikely. So again, uh, large skull, nasal aperture reflects large nose. Interesting, this individual also suffered severe injuries. The skull had been fractured above one of the eye orbits, an injury that would have left him blind in his left eye. Uh, his right arm was so withered that his forearm and hand were probably lost in an injury that severed it above the elbow. His feet had severe arthritis, and despite his injuries, the old man of Shanidar healed and continued to live. So Neanderthals in general are plagued with kind of like these ailments and severe injuries. We'll get into that in a minute. So some researchers think this could have happened only if he was given assistance by other members of his own group, which shows that Neanderthals may have taken care of one another. This is a very revolutionary thought. We did not think that it was possible for other species of humans other than our own species to take care of one another. And so to see so many ailments on one individual to live 
to such an old age is very unique in the fossil record. So it also gives us indication that now we are, there's a possibility that you're taking care of your sick, your injured, your elderly, and your young. Not just your young, but all of the others, right? So this is a map of where these Neanderthal sites are. As far east as the Iberian Peninsula, I'm sorry, as far west as the Iberian Peninsula, and as far east as Russia, really. So about 100,000 years ago in the west, and then to about 30,000 years ago um, in some of these very early, late sites in these uh, European areas. So again, this is the boundary. These little dots are all the sites of Neanderthals. Now notice how you start to get more sites of Neanderthals in the Western European areas, Middle East, and less as you head west. It appears as though through fossil evidence that Neanderthals again were this isolated group that really kind of resided in the Western European area. They did not originate in Africa. They did not migrate into Africa. They are not an African species. They are strictly a European and Asian species only. And when we say Asia, we mean the Middle East and the Russian area, because that's the Asian continent, right? So, a few notes. Uh, the very last Neanderthals lived just to about 30,000 years ago with evidence in Portugal and Spain. Their world was cold, very, very cold. You have to think about the climate in this kind of Western European Asia, even a Western European area today. When you go visit England, what do you bring? Do you bring your bathing suit? No, you bring an umbrella and a raincoat, right? I mean, they call it London fog for a reason, right? It's cold there, and it's always been cold there. It's a very high latitude. It's a very cold climate. It's not equatorial. So their world was very cold, and during the Pleistocene, it was incredibly cold. This is when you start getting ice formations start to form at the caps, and it starts to kind of expand all the way down into some of these very, very low latitudes, more so than you see today. So they had more of like this glacial desert environment. Do you know the term tundra? Have you heard of tundra? Sure. What do you think of when you hear the term tundra? There's a truck. <sighs> <laughs> yes, there is a, a truck called tundra. That's because it was made for a very rough environment. Tundra means that you cannot have trees grow. It just does not grow. There's not enough water. There's not enough uh, warmth, there's not enough availability to grow upward. So you get little tiny bushes, you get tiny little um, plants that grow on the ground. It's mainly going to be rocks and ice. And that's that tundra-like environment. And so that's kind of like a desert. There's not a whole lot of environment there. It's not bushes and trees and sun. It's very, very bleak. And it's almost like a cold desert. And so that's what they were dealing with. They were dealing with a climate that they adapted to their landscape by evolving biological traits and acquiring cultural adaptations such as clothing, fire, and tools. Most interestingly, we have very good evidence that Neanderthals buried their dead and they preserved their skeletons um, so it reduces the amount of scavenging carnivores. Again, my whole concept of maybe they were 
cutting away the meat from defleshing the bones of dead Neanderthals to reduce the amount of scavenging within the caves themselves. Again, it's very difficult for me to identify and jump to the conclusion that they were cannibalistic themselves. I don't know, you have to have more information regarding that, but there is evidence of cut marks that resemble butchering and processing of carcasses on the actual uh, bones of these archaic homos themselves. So they lived and survived for over 100,000 years in this very brutal glacial European environment. So in Europe, you have hundreds of fossil findings, and again, they call it cannibalism, but I don't really know if the butchering and processing of meat from a carcass could incite cannibalism. To me, that's jumping the bridge. There's a lot of gap of information that we're missing. We don't know if they were ingesting human meat. We don't have that information, but at the same time, we do have evidence of them, of Homoneanertalency bones out of France and other locations that show very clear striations of processing from a scraping-like material. So here we go. This is in France. Fossilized remains of six different Neanderthals, all of whom have cut marks on them. Scanning electron microscope reveals that the cut marks on the Neanderthal bones are similar in pattern to those found on animal bones. So. <clears throat> These cut marks, again, are very similar to the ones found on animal bones at the same site, indicating that Neanderthals were being processed for meat in much the same way that the animal carcasses were being processed. That's a much more elegant way of saying it, other than saying and jumping to the conclusion that they were actually eating the meat. We don't really know if they were eating the meat. Think of ancient Egyptians. They were em uh, embalming certain individuals, but were they eating them? We don't think so. We were just extracting certain organs so that we can maintain the actual structure of the body itself for the afterlife. But they, there's no evidence that they were eating those organs or producing some sort of cannibalistic ritual act, right? So I don't know. I, It's hard for me, the evidence is not there to say that they were cannibals, but at the same time, yes, this evidence does show the patterns are very similar to how they were processing animals at the same time, in the same place. So they were very cold adapted. Think about, you have to kind of think of everything on the whole, right? So they were in this very cold climate. They have this wide nasal aperture to really heat that air before it gets into the lung capacity. If it's too cold, I don't know, how many of you have ever been to a very cold environment, like New York during the dead of winter? You literally have to cover everything up but your eyes. If you don't cover your nose, it's very, very difficult to take a, a deep breath of air. You're almost like shocked. It's, it's debilitating. You can't get that air in. They also have something very um, interesting structurally on the crania. They have these large infraorbital foramen, which is really those passages that allow for nerves and blood vessels to run into the face. And what's interesting is that only in that Neanderthal group do you see those large foramen, uh, infraorbital foramen. If you look at Mr. Skeleton in the back, it's very, very small pinholes that we have. So, uh, Neanderthals, um, I think we got everything. Yes, we did already, okay. And then uh, again, look at the variation from what we know as a, as a male having very robust brow ridges, and then this is uh, denoted as being a female 
with a little bit of a reduced brow ridge, but again, very distinct wide nasal aperture. It's still present to the brow ridge, wear on those front teeth right there. Look at how short they are. So body size is actually a really keen understanding for us to understand why they have this stout body size. Body size and shape is very important to understanding the environment in which you are inhabiting. So it's not the height so much as the width that matters in cold climates, right? So cold adapted populations have those very wide torsos for two reasons, to maintain your heat, to maintain your metabolism, and also you need those lungs in very cold climates to maintain that capacity to take in oxygen in a very cold, especially high altitude climate. They are heat adapted populations that have very long torsos with very narrow body shapes. And that's again to whip away heat. If you had this individual in a very cold climate, this individual would not survive. He cannot maintain his heat unless he had some sort of clothing to clothe his body and maintain that heat and insulate it somehow. The taller you are, the more likely you are to wick that heat away. Think Usain Bolt the Jamaican who's the runner in every Olympics and wins every single time, it's because he is so tall, he can wick his uh, heat away so quickly, he has that incredibly large, wide gait, he has got the body for an equatorial-like environment. He can withstand any kind of heat in any kind of environment. You take a short guy that has a very round torso that is very well adapted to cold environment, his stride is going to be much more choppy, his gait is going to be much more short, and he's not going to be able to run nearly as quick as this tall adapted individual that can wick that heat away. He's made for a very cold climate. And then there you have the pygmy individual who is not only uh, dark skin to adapt for that uh, intense amount of sun, but also he is going to be short in way of understanding that island type of population, that dwarfism on that island type of, type of population. Very quickly, the Neanderthal tools has a specific type of tool technology. Remember for Homo habilis, we had an Oldowan tool, they were called the handyman. For the Acheulians, they had an hand axe known as the Acheulean type of tool technology. <coughs> With Neanderthals, they had their own tool technology called Mousterian. And in, um, in essence, <coughs> the type of flaking technique that they used was called Levawa. That's what, of course, they called it um, archeologically speaking. So it's a sophisticated tool type from the middle Paleolithic. You don't really need to know that, but it is a specific kind of flaking technique. A stone core was carefully and deliberately prepared by removing small flakes. So you take it and you kind of hit it. Remember when we were watching the video and how he had that nice uh, piece of flint and he says he was tapping it and he was like, I can hear the imperfection in it. I can hear it right around here. So let me, bam, and he hit it and the whole piece fell off. And he said, now if I were a homo erectus and I had this piece, I would neglect it completely and move on to a new piece because if my tool breaks in the middle of a hunt, I become the prey. You cannot rely on a faulty tool. So this is very keen to understand that they knew the type of material they were working with. They knew exactly how to flint it, and they knew exactly the technique they needed to to get the kind of tool they needed to use. So the stone core, that's this. This was one of those stone, this is the stone core. They start flaking it off of the edges and you start to get this very um, centered stone. Then you hit it 
right at the right spot and the whole top of it comes off and that is your scraper. That's what you're gonna use once you get the hide off the body and scrape all the rest of that blood and guts off of it so you can clean that hide off and use it as some sort of clothing material after it dries, right? So, <clears throat> removing small flakes from the perimeter of the rock so one blow can produce an effective scraping and cutting tool. Lavawa tool construction is not easy. It requires careful planning and hand-eye coordination. So you're talking about a population of individuals that are very cognitively and behaviorally advanced. Not individuals that we identify with as being the caveman, with this kind of uh, club walking around banging everything, right? And it's uh, you know, just knocking things over. It, they are actually much more technologically advanced than what we give them credit for although not nearly as innovative and ingenuitous as modern homo sapiens. That's the problem that they foresee in the near future when it comes down to who is the last man standing. So what they end up finding is uh, Neanderthals, they postulate, were very successful at processing meat, at procuring meat. Now again, to claim that they are successful hunters, hunters is a key term that incites a specific type of action. We don't have evidentiary evidence to say that they were hunters. We can't, we have evidence that they made stone tools, but to be successful hunters and to say they were successful hunters implies that we have evidence of them actually taking down animals and being successful in the hunt. Now, they, may have, they might have been very good at procuring meat because there is an abundance of bones of butchered animals at Neanderthal occupation sites. Scientists have taken isotope analysis, meaning small analyses, microscopic analyses of isotopes down to what is left in that caries of the teeth. So they do isotopic analysis, whatever is left of those isotopes of Neanderthal bones, and it has revealed that the bones and the tooth chemistry are similar to those found in carnivores. So they are having a diet made primarily, made up primarily of meat. So this plot chart shows the isotopes of carbon and nitrogen from many different animals. So you have uh, different animals of deer up here, and I think this is in your, in your book. Page 412. Yeah, page 412, right? So, uh, stable anal uh, isotope analysis of both carbon and nitrogen are labeled respectively and can be used to determine relative amount of different food consumed. The graph shows the isotope values for a variety of herbivores and carnivores. Herbivores generally have lower isotope levels than carnivores, and Neanderthal isotope values are close to those of carnivores. And so they ate plenty of meat. So they're saying that the Neanderthals which are right here, are very reminiscent to like a large cat type of diet. Whereas the deer, the horse, um, these guys are going to be typically herbivore in diet. They're eating a lot of vegetable type plant-based material. So they're gonna have a different isotope makeup. Whereas you start to see this cat, fox, bear uh, population really having these very high levels of nitrogen isotopes, which we also see in this Neanderthal population. 
So meat was a huge component of their diet and Neanderthals must have been quite good at procuring the meat. Furthermore, some studies have revealed that Neanderthals had a similar pattern of healed injuries close to those of rodeo riders in American athletics, suggesting that they may have been frequently injured during the hunting bouts with large animals. Plaque that remains in the Neanderthal teeth have been scraped for material and have found that Neanderthals ate plants, which some of it might have been cooked, and that some evidence um, show that the plants may not have had nutritional value, but more medicinal value. So you start getting kind of this very um, new basis for understanding this human population that we really didn't know before. You start to think, did they have rituals? Did they have traditions? Did they have social abilities that allowed for these types of things to occur? We also have evidence at La Chapelle of intentional, deliberately buried dead. That means that they're not only taking care of their elders and their sick, but they're also practicing burial practices. These are ritual, purposeful, intentful acts, not just haphazardly laying on the top of the ground and or thrown into a mass grave. These individuals have symbols associated with them. There is evidence of necklaces, shells that are placed in a necklace placed around the neck. There are body pigments on them, certain body colors like red that have a whole indication of red all over the body. These are, this is new. This is new in way of understanding human interaction with other individuals, not just taking care of the young, but also taking care of the old and now the dead. So is there a possibility for ritual acts, for tradition, for possibility of religion? possibility of all sorts of other things that we may not have understood in this population prior to evidence of these burials. What's really interesting is that Neanderthals could have also had the ability for speech. The hyoid bone that was found at Kibara was also the same shape, size, and formation as modern humans. Exactly. Neanderthals also showed the possibility of brain laterality. That means that they have the possibility for handedness. How many of you in here are left-handed? How many of you in here are right-handed? That's a majority of individuals, and that's passed down behaviorally. That is also shown on teeth wear on Neanderthal teeth. This tube right here is of the front right incisor. It also shows that they're still using their teeth as sort of a, a third appendage, and they're striking with that Lavalwa technique tool, and it's somewhat scraping, kind of like if you file your nails, it's gonna have a little bit of striation. They're somewhat striking a little bit of gradation on that teeth as they're cleaning that hide or processing that meat. And what it's showing is in the red striations, it's in a pattern that shows a specific type of handedness from right to left, right to left. So that would indicate a right-handed individual or a left-minded individual with this wear pattern on the teeth. Very, very interesting. So the scratches on the incisor are not random, but oriented in a way that could only have been made by a right-handed individual cutting meat by gripping the front with the teeth and striating it from top to bottom 
scraping your tooth, somewhat getting very close, especially if you need to get onto that very tight pattern right next to your mouth. Very, very interesting features in that teeth wear. And of course, we were able in some of the very, very late findings of Neanderthals, some of those Neanderthals coming out of like the 50,000 year range that haven't quite yet been fossilized. That's why it's so important to reduce contamination. We got down into the DNA and we actually found that it has the same variant of FOXP2 that we as modern humans have. So the evidence of the hyoid bone, the persistence of this mutation known as the FOXP2 that we have today gives us clear indication that they had the ability for language. We don't know if they spoke or had a specific type of language, but that was actually there for them to use and pursue. And with the advent of this deliberately positioned dead, burying of the dead, the necklaces, the body pigments, these are all indications that they had to have very close social interactions with each other, that they were able to communicate much more beyond grunts and groans and the basic communication levels that we see in some primates today. So this is very, very keen to understand this population that has gone extinct. Okay, so again, this is your summary overview. It's on page 415. I really like these boxes. It keeps it nice and succinct. You can go back to it. These are where you can go and get your notes from. So uh, again, on page 415 for you. So the next slides, again, those slides were focusing on all Neanderthals. These next slides are gonna focus on early modern Homo sapiens. What we are considering our closest relatives in way of lineage getting up to us today. So some of these behavioral changes are seen in artwork and specifically in the tool technologies. So the timeline for these tool technologies are called uh, Agrutrian, the Grovitian, the Salutrian, and the Magdalenian. And this goes in order of time. And if you look Way in the back behind our friend, right above our friend Tommy, we have a Clovis culture artifacts. That's a specific type of hafting of a specific type of tool technology that is seen only in North and South America. That's a tool technology that defines a specific time period of peopling of the new world, which we'll get into at the end of this chapter at the beginning of the next one, in way of understanding the migration out of the old world and into the new world. And that tool technology is very specific to that 12,000 year mark in the Americas. So that comes after all of these. You start to get very artistic images coming out of this very uh, late Paleolithic culture. And these early modern Homo sapiens, they become very, very social. We start to see not only tool technologies, but the massive amounts of different tools from different mediums, bone, antler, stone, um, uh, fish bone, uh, you start to see harpoons, you start to see hooks, you start to see all different kinds of tool technologies, not just of stone itself. And then you start to see artist illustrations, which really are these massive, beautiful, uh, illustrations of naturally occurring species in their environment at that time. So this is like a La Chavot cave in uh, France. Have, have any of you seen or heard of that cave in France? 
incredibly uh, artistic cave. You go deep into it, and the paintings are all on the walls. And some of these images are 15, 20 feet long, and they have been made by candlelight, by small pigmentations of uh, naturally occurring plants in the area. Very, very interesting, and they date back to many thousands of years ago, 30,000. Look at the, look at the reminiscence of a rhinoceros 30,000 years ago in Europe. We don't see rhinoceros in Europe anymore, so that now has gone extinct as well. So you have to think of the time, you have to think of the Pleistocene. A lot of these animals have gone extinct as warming has occurred over the time of modern human evolution. Without humans involvement, right? They just, things naturally evolve, naturally go extinct, such as life. Early modern humans, um, in Africa first, we start to see that the features that really define this early modern human group really come out of Africa first. The origin of our lineage, hominini, and the origin of our genus, homo, and the origin of our species, homo sapiens, all resides in Africa. The anatomy features really are the earliest fossils with this very high forehead, reduced face and teeth, a really round skull, and a chin with very gracile postcranial bones, all found in Africa long before they are being found in Asia and Europe. The oldest fossils that are classified as modern Homo sapiens are found in Ethiopia. So again, uh, all of these features that are really reminiscent of these modern humans, specifically that tall vertical forehead and the presence of the chin. You're looking at the Cleisys uh, River Mouth Cave. This is probably one of the most well-known <coughs> modern human sites in South Africa, Cleisys River Mouth right here. Probably one of the most well-known because um, not only really great composition of uh, fossil material, but at the same time, the location is great. You're right on the edge of the uh, marine life. You have this really great advantage for marine uh, diet as well as land bearing foods. I mean, this is probably one of the best places for early human sites because of the availability of the environment being so gracious to the population. But again, that prominent chin really shows in this fossil record at that location. And that is that chin right here. So this is the lower mandible. Here are the teeth, and this is that presence of the chin right there. It's much more recessed and not even present in previous homo lineages. Okay, so here's that page that I was talking about. The pages that come before 416 are all considered archaic. The pages that come after 416 are all modern individuals. What's so important about this page is the Kibawa versus the Herto skull. The Kabawa really shows these archaic features, the loud, the, the loud, the, that was the long and brow ridge put together. Uh, the uh, brow, the pronounced brow ridge with the long, low skull and the slightly prognathic face with the large nasal aperture found in, of course, the uh, African, European, and Asian area. Whereas the Hertos skull really shows that pronunciation of the tall crania, forehead, reduced face, 
those features with the uh, reduced brow ridge as well. What's more interesting is this chart right here. If you have time to go back into your book, I would star this chart because much like some of the other charts we've been looking at, this could be testable material. What this is showing is this homo sapiens have a big brain that evolves over time. You start to see, and it's very difficult to see right here, but if you can see in your book, it starts at Sahel, goes through all of the Australopiths, goes to Habilis, which has a significant jump in cranial capacity, Erectus with an even significant jump after that, and then you get into the Sapien group, which has a very significant jump in cranial capacity. So on the left-hand side, on that Y-axis, you're getting the brain size right here. And on the x-axis, you're getting all the different species and the plot of where their brain size uh, measures up to all the other brain sizes in relation. And so this is very telling to show that the HOMO line has a hallmark feature in the increased size of the brain <clears throat> over time. So hallmark features start out with bipedalism, non-honing canine, then you start to see that increase in the brain size as you get into the homo line. So that's why that chart is so telling and important to understand because that brain size really starts to peak out at modern living people at 1500 cc's, whereas it started out at about 650 cc's, about half to less than half that size in homo habilis. So we'll read an article today. I wonder if I have enough time. Let me see. Uh, I don't know if I have enough time to get to the rest of the slides. What I'd like to do is, is take a break because I do want to get to the activity which talks about some of these concepts of why we possibly could be having a bigger brain. What were the catalysts for those bigger brains, for building those bigger brains? And I want to get to that in some of these articles that I had pinpointed for us to read. So what I'd like for you guys to do is take a break to 8.15. And I think it's actually page 416. Anything that comes before page 416 is going to be considered archaic Homo sapiens. Anything that comes after 416 is going to be considered modern. Your author is a lumper. We discussed these two terms, uh, lumper versus splitter. And in this sense, he identifies he identifies everything as modern and archaic to be Homo sapiens. He identifies those as, before that, as certain species, like Erectus, Habilis, Naledi, Antecessor, whatever they are. So it's a little bit confusing why he starts to lump at the end, but he gives an explanation saying that uh, the, the genetics and the morphologies are so similar that they really don't adhere to separate categories, so thus we, he lumps them. I, on the other hand, um, am a splitter. And so therefore, I know these groups as separate entities like Homo neanderthalensis, Homo sapiens, um, and Homo heidelbergensis. So you kind of lose that distinction along the way. But I think in a sense, he identifies all of these as being Homo sapiens, just gradations of uh, periods of time in which they occurred, which would also allude to the fact of certain representative morphologies to those groups. So archaic meaning more uh, robust in features and modern being more grossile in features. Those are terms you should also be familiar with. Okay, so getting back to page 420, 421, 
On this left side, we see features of the more archaic individuals, things like a more pronounced brow ridge, a long, low skull, the presence of an occipital butt, especially for Neanderthals, that's a very uh, distinct feature on the back lower portion of the skull. On this page, we start to see more clear features in way of modern humans. You start to see the presence of this tall, high vertical forehead, the presence of a mental eminence. Those are very key hallmark features for modern humans. This nice round cranial bolt with a nice uh, big brain up to about 1500 cc. Uh, you also start to see the change in uh, tool technology as well. And if you look on page uh, 416, it gives you that upper Paleolithic tool technology uh, starting from the Agrucian, going into the Gravitian, Salutrian, and then Magdalenian. Uh, that's really up to where we are going to end on chapter 13. This graph is also really important, understanding all of the variations of our hominin path, starting from Sahel. Does it start at Sahel? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Start at Sahel and it jumps all the way to Australopithecus into the Homo lineage. And noting the cranial capacity of each genus and species as it marks its way up to modern living humans at 1500 cc's. And so this is very telling for that brain evolution, the expansion of that brain over time. But remember, and please tell me, what are the two hallmark features for identifying a hominin from a great ape? When we are starting to break off at that about eight to 12 million year mark, what are some of those key features that start standing out in the archeological record, in that, that uh, paleontological record? Larger brains, smaller teeth. Way later, what comes first to identify a hominin from an ape? Bipedalism, and then what's that second one? Has to do with your teeth. Canines are more large and pronounced with a diastema in apes. You start to get that non-honing canine presence in the hominin line. Yes, very good, you guys are on that right track. Okay, so lots to cover in these last chapters, lots to look over. Definitely utilize that study guide page. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm really offering extra credit for that because I think it's necessary and I'd like for you to kind of have that as your go-to page for studying and for the exam. Okay, let's see. Let's carry on. So again, uh, we're talking about modern humans having the ability for more uh, innovative tool technologies. Again, this is the possible practice of cannibalism, especially uh, when you start to see striations on the bones and Neanderthals, the defleshing of bones. That doesn't necessarily mean the consumption of the meat after defleshing. I think some scientists like to jump to that conclusion because it's very fancy, it's very exciting, but at the same time, we don't really have that isotope analysis of uh, human meat in the caries of the teeth to identify it specifically as cannibalism. So maybe just defleshing for ritual purposes. Remember that we start to see rituals in Neanderthals that are really uh, keen for what we think of as human practices. They start to bury their dead. They make things like necklaces. They have symbolic uh, rituals. Very, very different than what we see prior to that. We don't see that in Homo erectus or previous uh, hominid species. So remember that now, because we're going past this page, we're gonna be talking about modern humans. There's a nice chart on page 422. It might be coming up. I don't know if I have it here, I don't. On page 422, there's a nice table that delineates 
this archaic group, the archaic homo sapiens and the types of features against the moderns. So we have an increase in brain size, we have a more gracile face, a decrease in the size and uh, robusticity of the face. And more important, this decrease in the size of the teeth and the jaws. And so that really is going to be the defining factor. When we left off last week, we also read a cool article. Uh, this one, wait, no, not this one, I apologize. When Neanderthals replaced us, uh, this article was really interesting because it, it brought to light new information regarding the persistence and uh, success of Neanderthals in Europe in a very cold, adaptive climate and the, the presence of modern humans in that same climate with the possibility of modern humans not being able to survive and Neanderthals really being the more advantageous uh, in that environment. And so we'll get into that again and seeing that some of these modern humans really are built for this long lean body to wick the heat away, better for a hot environment, not being able to withstand that very cold climate within that European area during the Pleistocene, the very, very cold uh, glaciation at around a million to 10,000 years ago. So we have a really um, high variation within modern humans, especially in Africa. We start to see that, uh, now these are, these are very recent modern humans. These are dating back only to about 9,500 years before present, so not this mark all the way to 200,000 years ago. But what we're seeing is that, there, again, there's a variation in these uh, morphologies. The robusticity of the skull is not eliminated, but it is reduced. So you still see the presence of the forehead, and you now see the presence of all moderns with that mental eminence of a chin. So, and their diet is dependent on locality, right? So as closer you get to the equator, you're gonna have a much more warmer uh, forested environment. Further away you get from the equator, you're going to reduce the, uh, the connectedness of that forest environment to grasslands with patches of forest. And so that also changes the environment and the diet associated with those individuals. So you might have this individual uh, if he is more equatorial, uh, sub-Saharan area, you might have him with a more thick brow ridge, more pronounced jaw. The cheekbones obviously have more pronunciation in them, whereas this individual on the eastern edge of Africa shows less brow ridge, taller forehead, uh, more gracile cheekbones. But again, uh, not all humans are becoming gracile at the same time. Uh, let's see, let's go to the next one. But what I, do, what I do need to note, and I apologize, I didn't note this. The modern human, spe uh, modern human species, Homo sapiens, are originating in Africa. That is absolutely where they originate. We don't have any dates predating outside of Africa. Modern humans are in Africa about 200,000 years on the outer edge. That is the absolute date for modern humans in general, 200,000 years ago, and they originate in Africa. So it puts to question some of these models of um, migration or models of how modern humans populated the earth. We talked about the out of Africa theory and the hypothesis and the multi-regional hypothesis. It seems as though maybe it's a little of both, but not exactly one or the other. Um, and we'll get into that in just a couple of slides. 
But essentially, what's most important is you start to see this presence of modern Homo sapiens in Africa at the earliest 200,000 years ago. So that's your star. Okay. Then we see the next oldest group of modern humans in Asia. Those are the Homo sapien groups, that's the modern humans, at around the earliest 100,000 years. So, again, um, some of the... Some of the examples are, again, skull five. Uh, two views of this same skull. I cannot pronounce that crania. Uh, I very much apologize. I don't have the pronunciation. Zokuvian, not sure. Anyway, uh, located out of the eastern area of China. And notice, again, the robusticity of the brow ridge, the flattening of the face, which is really keen to still notice that phenotypic uh, <coughs> facial morphology in the Asian population today as well. So very, uh, very interesting. The appearance of the first anatomical modern Homo sapiens occurs somewhat later in Asia, again, first in Africa. Uh, and it confirms the presence of modern Homo sapiens in East Africa by the absolute latest 30,000 years with, again, these pronounced brow ridges, small flat face that is still seen in those Asian populations today. So some of these features are now becoming uh, geographically clinal in those areas. What's interesting, and they went over this in the Homo erectus video that we saw, is a small island in Indonesia called Flores. We found uh, a specific group of hominins with very little data associated with it. So we had one crania, and many body parts, but essentially saying that this was a very, very small hominin species. Some individuals think that it was so small because of the brain size being 400 cc's, the height only being about three uh, feet tall, that maybe this was um, a possibility of Australopithecines heading out of Africa very early on in the timeline. Uh, unfortunately, the date associated with the bones did not date back to the 3 million year mark. Instead, it dated back only to about 60,000 years ago. So in that essence, it would be still considered modern human. At the same time, there are a couple hypotheses. The dwarf hypothesis, meaning that because you are on an island, you have only an isolated location to grow on, and it is so tiny as it is that you become dwarfed in size over time in multiple generations. That was one of the uh, hypotheses. The other one is that they had microcephaly, meaning just a very small head, but everything else was really small as well. So it doesn't really uh, give enough information. We need a lot more data to go on to kind of create a better understanding of this group of individuals, but it's a very interesting group of individuals that come out at around 60 million years ago. Um, it seems as though maybe uh, the dwarf hypothesis is probably the most um, accepted. So discoveries of the skeleton described it as a new species of hominin, Homo floresiensis, because it's found on the island of Flores. It is also associated with the Homo lineage, and hypothesis that it may have experienced island dwarfism from an ancestor that was larger, like Homo habilis or Homo erectus, essentially uh, became trapped on the island about a million years ago and slowly shrank in size, um, as most island mammals tend to do, and lived there until only about 100,000 years ago. So this represents a highly unusual morphology, 
at the extremes of hominin variation in the middle to the late Pleistocene. So remember that we have today human variation. All of us in here are of different colors and sizes, and that is still within the spectrum of Homo sapiens sapien variation. So this too is also a on the extreme end of that hominin variation within the Homo line at about 60 million years ago. So now let's go out of Asia. We went to Africa first to talk about modern humans in Africa. We went into Asia next. That's where we find the next oldest sources of modern humans, then back into Europe. What is really interesting in Europe, much like this article that we read when we did our group discussion, is that you start to see in Europe specifically, this population that starts to cohabitate a certain environment, the Neanderthals or the archaic Homo sapiens, as your book calls it, with the modern humans. Although still really defining that the, those traits out into uh, different categories. The Neanderthals still with that really long, low skull, the presence of this occipital bun and the presence of this really pronounced brow ridge. Uh, the cranial, um, the nasal aperture is going to be wide and it's going to allow for warming of the air as it comes into the nose so that you don't get uh, caught up in that really warm air. And a, a very significant pinching at the bottom of the nasal bone, which is a, uh, morphological feature associated with Neanderthals. In way of the Europeans, the modern humans in, in Europe, we're getting again that really tall cranial vault with the presence of the forehead and that mental eminence. And that nasal aperture is going to be narrow, much more narrow. So again, really reflecting this concept of the initial modern human population coming out of Africa with those really long lean body types being able to wick away the heat. So very interesting to see that they were able to cohabitate uh, a similar niche together, but at the same time, Neanderthals really having that advantageous uh, upper hand in that cold, dry climate of the glaciation, um, during the glaciation of the European continent at that time. Uh, what we end up finding, which is really cool, is that there is the possibility of these two different groups coming together and having the possibility of interbreeding. Um, let's see. More examples of early modern Homo sapiens in Europe. This is in about the 35,000 to 15,000 year range. Cro-Magnon is a very interesting individual. We actually have a replica of Cro-Magnon. He's the black and, and beige one up here with the nice, ooh, we've got a nice termination in the front right there. He needs to get by something. But this is Cro-Magnon right there. Cro-Magnon's very uh, identifiable because of those really low, stout brow ridges. Comes out of a, the Cro-Magnon area of France. Um, again, presence of that tall cranial vault with the forehead, nice round crania. But what's interesting is this back occipital bun right here. And that's really the presence of that Neanderthal feature. So we start to start, we start to see that some of these features are kind of blended in this European area. And so this guy right here on the bottom, your left, uh, he, his name is Wal, uh, Walpoff, Milford Walpoff. And he is he analyzed some Neanderthal 
bones and morphologies, and he actually said that there could be the possibility of this interbreeding of these populations in the really Western Arab European area. Strong proponent, proponent of the idea that Neanderthals were not a separate species, but contributed to the genes of modern humans today, especially Europeans. And this is the same hypothesis or understanding that your author is under. That's why they lump them together, because they really are not a separate species in the way that they are, they have a lot of gene flow between the two groups allowing them to mix their genes together and that would not allow for separation of species but then blending of the species so he calls them all one species and that's why he doesn't delineate between them he keeps them all lumped together so again a strong proponent of the idea that neanderthals were not separate species but contributed to the genes of modern humans especially europeans and so the neanderthal fossils dwindled and vanished no earlier than 30,000 years. We don't see any more Neanderthal features in the fossil record after 30,000 years. So something happens at 30,000 years. We think that modern humans start to come in and interbreed and start to really um, take over the area. A climatic change starts to happen at that time. It could start warming up, not allowing for the really stout body type to thrive in the European area at that time. So things are really changing at that 30 year mark and that's when we start to really see the dying off of all other homo species and we are left with homo sapiens at that time. So the late upper paleolithic modern homo sapien fossils in Europe were stocky and these are modern homo sapiens. So we're starting to see this modern body shape go from a long lean to a stocky with wider trunk and shorter legs uh, than we saw the homo sapiens, the modern homos coming out of Africa. So big question is, is this because modern homo sapiens in Europe were also cold adapted and convergently, meaning at the same time independently, started to create morphologies due to the environment, uh, sort of adapt at the same time, but have two different lineages, uh, evolve features, in the same area, or is this evidence for, again, interbreeding amongst two groups or the possibility of both? And I strongly believe actually it's the possibility of both. So here's that evidence. Uh, Sponte Pablo, Pavo, and uh, uh, he's a geneticist in Switzerland and the Netherlands. Uh, he works with the Max Planck Institute. That would be like a dream job, Max Planck Institute. So, they actually were able to extract some nuclear DNA from some of the more recent fossil findings that haven't really had uh, fossilization occur all the way, so they were able to pull small portions of the nuclear DNA from Neanderthals in the uh, Siberian area and said had they had about 1-4% to 4 genetic contribution to modern humans also found in that area. So. The lineage of Neanderthals still lives within some of those very old European lineages today. We still see that in the genetic code. So um, there is evidence that it is possible that Neanderthals and humans in Europe really interbred the close proximity, the sharing of habitat. You start to get individuals that look like you. If you can mate with them and they come out with fertile offspring, that's gonna be okay. 
So again, these uh, this group of Homo sapiens is really going to be grouped together with your author lumping them all together. So on page 430, we get a nice little box detailing the features and the morphologies of that early modern Homo sapien group and the chronology of where it happens first. And if you notice, in the middle of that box, it says the chronology starts in Africa, goes into Asia, and then later another migration happens into Europe. So uh, again, the European area not being as uh, climatically favorable, really starting to kind of veer east into a more favorable climate first. So then your author presents a different model, which is not really seen or accepted across the board, but he calls it the assimilation model. And so he says that not really everybody adheres to the out of Africa theory because there is gene flow across groups. Um, and so the out of Africa theory doesn't really allow for that, that uh, gene flow. Uh, out of Africa posited an African origin for Homo sapiens and the complete replacement, which means no interbreeding. Whereas the multi-regional posited gene flow, but it doesn't allow for this concept of similarities between um, the modern European Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. So the assimilation model is what he is proposing, and that's what this is. And he's saying that there's a pattern of genetic diversity, and most of that genetic diversity is found in Africa. And I'll get into that in a minute. That's what that chart is over there. Africans, on the whole, if you are a lineage that has not left Africa, Africans on the whole have more genetic diversity than all other human populations in the world. And that's because as you're leaving Africa and going throughout the world, you're kind of uh, creating gene flow with other populations. The individuals that stayed in Africa and were the modern humans at 200,000 years ago, that lineage has a very diverse population. They did not have a lot of gene flow happening with other populations of humans. So they retain some of the very um, novel, what we call novel genetic components, meaning very clear, uh, unique genetic codes that are different than the homogenous codes that are being interbred all the way across the world. And so what he's saying is this, this is the sequence of divergence. So Africans are in this really tall pillar right here showing that they have a really significant divergence in the gene code. Asians are next in line. They have it because you, we went and settled right into Asia next. Whereas Australians, especially Europeans and the New Guineans have the least amount of genetic divergence, meaning they share a gene code that is very, very similar to one another. Whereas Asians and Africans have a much more uh, diverse and the gene code is actually much more, um, uh, it's a more diverse gene code than the ones that are interbreeding along the way. So here is that page 343, the summary of all of these models. So what he's saying in the assimilation model is that modern humans first evolved in Africa and then spread into Asia first and then Europe. And once they arrived in Asia and Europe, modern humans underwent gene flow with Neanderthals, and so that's why he lumps them together. Too much genetic information close enough to not delineate them apart. So what's interesting is the migration patterns into places like Australia. 
So there's evidence that humans migrated to Australia by about 40,000 years ago. Now remember that the climatic environment of the Earth at that time was very cold. The glacial poles were sucking up a lot of that water, reducing the sea levels and creating kind of walkable land bridges. And that was all the way down into the, into the Asian, Pacific Asian areas. So all of this area right here, look at all these little islands. That also means that if you're sucking up water at the poles, all of these islands start to become not just islands, but connected by large patches of sand. And so you start to get the availability of populations from this very Eastern Asian area, the possibility of walking on land bridges all the way down into the Indonesian area, and then really the largest distance, what we have uh, scientifically found out is that some of the longest distances between those other patches of sand would be only about 40 miles. So there is a very good possibility that at around 40, 60,000 years ago, um, modern humans were constructing some sort of rafts or boats to get to the next uh, to get to the next group of islands and this could be pushed by resource competition if you're really starting to see other people in your environment and you're not able to compete with them your resources are starting to dwindle remember these are natural hunting gathering groups if you're starting to outsource things or out compete other individuals and now all of your natural resources are resources are depleted, you need to move to a greener pasture, if you will. And so this is the catalyst for moving to a new area. And some of these individuals may have had the ability to create some sort of raft in a very shallow environment to raft to the next island. And so you end up in Australia. So what this is showing you is that they, the migration pattern comes out of Asia into Australia, into the uh, Pacific Island area, and then again, another migration pattern coming into the South Australian area right here. The other pattern, which we will talk about in the end of this chapter, at the chapter 13, what becomes more prevalent in chapter 13, is this bearing land bridge between the very eastern edge of Siberia and the very western edge of North America. And again, those poles are sucking up a lot of water. There's a lot of ice being locked in at the poles during that Pleistocene glaciation. It's reducing sea levels. And at this portion right here, remember when Sarah Palin said, oh, I could see Russia from my house. That's exactly what she freaking meant, right? Is that like, if you look and it's enough of that, that water being reduced down, it's going to be a walkable plank all the way across. And so you, we end up finding fossil evidence. We end up finding uh, cultural evidence in way of, um, of stone tools that are following big game across that very land bridge and coming into that North America, what we call the ice-free corridor, down through the middle of the North American continent. So there's a lot of archeological evidence right here in the Montana area that's coming through, again, that ice-free corridor. We also have evidence of possibilities of rafting along this western coast of the Americas, especially settling down right here to that South American coast. Um, and those uh, are associated with certain types of tool technologies as well. So again, this is called peopling of the new world because the new world, which is North and South America, 
were the last places to be inhabited by people. Remember, Africa, Asia, Europe first. But then we have this enormous glaciation, availability for walking on land that wasn't there uh, before the poles were formed. And you start to see the presence of some of these um, Native American populations have Eastern Asian features. And if we were to take some of that DNA, they have a DNA haplotype associated with a specific mitochondrial DNA passed down from mother to mother to mother that is resemblance of a very Eastern, um, Europe, Eastern Asian population. So one of the features is this shovel-shaped incisor. You see this on a very clear Asian population, but lineages that are original to that migration pattern into North America are from that Eastern Europe, Asian Europe, Eastern Asian continent. They too have that shovel-shaped incisor. So the Native American population share that very clear Eastern Asian feature. You will also see individuals that are populating South America that are like the Incan populations or the Aztecian populations, and they too have this shovel-shaped incisors because their haplotype is, again, of that Eastern Asian genetic composition. So the new, the peopling of the New World dates back to the earliest. The fossil evidence, some of it dates back to 12,000, but new data shows maybe at the earliest possibility 15,000 years ago. It's associated with a tool technology called Clovis and Folsom. Clovis comes first, Folsom next, as you start to kind of branch out with those Native American populations into the eastern edges of the Americas, you start to see Folsom. But those very first populations come with a Clovis point. And if you look back right there on the, um, the black poster, it says Clovis culture artifacts. And those are all the Clovis points associated with that time period at around 15,000, 12,000 years with modern humans populating the new world. Yes, yeah. Say that last portion again. Is that a possibility? Maybe that the bright in the American continent evolved themselves into an early hominid? By this time, there are no primates at all in North America. So uh, the climatic environment does not allow for an arboreal or primate species to occur in North America. South America, a little bit different. Warmer, uh, very equatorial, um, humid jungle environment, so they are able to thrive in the South American area, especially Central American area. But as far as the North American area, too cold. Not enough forest locations for that arboreal lifestyle, so we don't see New World North American primates. And in, in way of primates, you have to be an ape, a great ape, to transition, have that genetic composition to transition into a hominid. And we only have that fossil evidence, we only have that data out of Africa. So that lineage of hominid begins in Africa at around, we have genetic evidence dating back to about eight to 12 million years ago. We only have fossil evidence starting at Sahelanthropus at around seven million years ago. So we're lacking that fossil evidence to back up our genetic data. 
but that point of node where that great eight branch off, branches off and the hominin branches off dates back to about eight to 12 million years ago and it's originated in Africa. Yeah, yeah, so no hominins could have a convergent evolution, independent evolution in North America at the same time. There's no evidence for that at this time, at this time. Yeah, oh, good question, very good question, very enlightening, thank you. So this is that uh, chart right here showing you, I wish it was a little bit bigger, I probably could have made it bigger. This is that haplotype group, so we have only really four haplotypes, and notice that they all really come from that Eastern Asian area. DNA similarities with that Northeastern Asian haplotype. And so you start to see that as you're coming across this kind of Canadian border, it's very, very yellow. And you still maintain kind of that yellow haplotype until you get down here where it starts to turn into that red with predominant haplotype. And so these are really now starting to become those geographic populations that are going to stay in that area for a long time. And that's where really we're gonna to start to see the um, populations start to take off and because you're now in these new locations, these populations start to, the, to breed and you have a, a larger population, larger population, and now you need to feed that larger, excuse me, that larger population. And that's where we get into chapter 13. I'm gonna have you guys look over this question really quick. It's in chapter 12, it is at the beginning of chapter 12, specifically talking about speech capabilities in Neanderthals. I think it's important to note that Neanderthals do share a genetic code that is very similar to modern humans. They also share a morphology of the hyoid that is very similar to modern humans. Page 414, 413, 414. And so with genetic evidence, with morphological evidence of the hyoid bone itself, we can make educated guesses about the hypothesis for speech and communication of language among Neanderthals. Now remember that Neanderthals were burying their dead. Neanderthals were making symbolic features like necklaces, like painting the body red, uh, using uh, stone tool technologies that were much more advanced than Homo habilis and Homo erectus. So this really allowed for cognitive abilities that really outweighed the previous hominin groups. And so, discuss why the hyoid bone is an important clue regarding Neanderthal speech. So if you need to go back and read page 413 and 414 is really the crucial element of that question. All right. Okay, um, I think Question for you guys. Would you like to carry on through chapter 13 and have the possibility of gaining out early? Or would you like to take a break and then carry on through chapter 13? Carry on. Okay, she'll do it. Okay, so chapter 13 is really cool because chapter 13 talks about basically us as modern humans, as we are anatomically modern humans today, and all of the features associated with becoming large sedentary populations like we are today. 
and we are still evolving today. So, we're going to talk about the last 10,000 years. In the last 10,000 years, we see a huge climatic shift. It goes from a very, very cold environment to starting to get warmer. It's starting to warm up. And this is on the whole. The whole world is starting to warm up. In reality, the world itself is not 